And now for our scripture reading. From Genesis 4, verses 1 through 2. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his son, or to his brother, Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. From Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 22. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant, and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch, Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mehujael, and Mehujael was the father of Methusael, and Methusael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Adah and the other Zillah. Adam, or Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jabal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal Cain's sister was Namah. From Matthew, chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. From 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. From Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 7. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud pearls of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to to God. God. Just a heads up as we start, today's message will refer to adult themes of marriage and sex. So if you're concerned with children around you hearing this content, feel free to hit pause and come back at a more suitable time for you. When Julie and I first got married, we really didn't know what we were getting into. I think this picture says it all. Look, we don't know how to feed ourselves. We're dressed in full, like formal attire, and we're feeding ourselves with our fingers, not with utensils. And we saw marriage modeled by our parents. We both grew up in the church. We had an idea that marriage meant something to do with lifelong, hopefully, commitment to one another. Raising a family, merging our lives together, and serving God together. And of course, marriage also apparently offered the promise of guilt-free sex. But we never really thought about what marriage really, really meant. 
We had no idea, we had an idea that Christ, the Christian view of marriage was a little bit different from, the mar from marriage in, outside the church and in civil partnerships. But marriage for us really was just mostly the next step in a relationship that we were willing to commit to for the rest of our lives. Now, despite our ignorance and by learning to communicate better and depending a lot on God's grace and prayer for others, from others, I think we've been able to survive, manage okay so far. Now, because of our natural dispositions, I think it's relatively easy for, to be married to someone like Julia, and I think she would say the same thing about me. But I don't think we've really had to think about what we think about marriage, kind of like how most English speakers don't really think about what they say and how they use their English grammar until they use a new language. You know, as a pastor, doing weddings and marriage counseling all come with the territory. So I've had my fair share of conversations with different kinds of marriage relationships. And as the Christian church navigates what it means to bless same-sex marriages, the question I keep asking myself is, what exactly is marriage? And is the conversation for marriage equality uh, that continues to go on, what is the nature and what is the quality of the marriage relationship that people have in mind when we're talking about marriage? Now, in, in today's message, I want to take a historical, cultural approach to marriage that will hopefully add greater depth and nuance and also provide a common language to what we are referring to when we talk about a particularly Christian view of marriage. And though we are focused on the topic of marriage today, I hope that we might all re also recognize that the way marriage is idealized in our contemporary culture and also Christian culture in comparing it to singleness, is more a product of our wider culture than a particularly purer view of Christian faithfulness. So we're going to talk through three developments of marriage. Marriage as provision, marriage as covenant, and marriage as worship. Provision, covenant, and worship. You know, as human civilization has developed over thousands of years, people move from being these nomadic hunter-gatherer clans to be, being an agrarian society who worked the land, and eventually to more complex societies and towns and cities and empires. As hunter-gatherers, nomadic clans consisted of up to 30 people and had several male leaders and multiple women shared by them and children. And they would move around wherever the food and uh, they needed to, whatever they needed to do to survive. And as agrarian societies developed, they required more stable and defined relationships. And so began an early understanding of marriage, binding a woman to a man. And the very first, uh, the first recorded marriages were uniting one man and one woman to another date back to 2350 BC in Mesopotamia, the region that the story of the Bible comes from. Now these marriages had little to do with love and nothing to do with religion. They were primarily concerned about defining biological heirs who would inherit land and property two very valuable assets in an agrarian society. And not only were they agrarian societies, ancient cultures were also patriarchal, at least most of them were. Wives were the property of men to provide legitimate offspring to the man. And we can note this development of civilization and of marriage recorded even in scripture, as Jenna read for us. In Genesis 4, we're told that Adam and Eve made love, at least in the NIV, as did Cain, to his wife in verse 17. 
Now, made love here is a very modern euphemism for sexual intimacy that translators have used for the NIV. A more literal translation that shows up in other translations of the original Hebrew verb is to know. And here, to know refers not just to knowing conceptually, but relationally and physically. Hence why the NIV wants to make it explicit using modern language. Now, when we get to verse 19, it's seven generations later. And we're told that Lamech married two, two wives, married two wives, not made love, but married two wives. We see a progression from two people cast out of a garden to a more complex society with Cain building us a city and the children of Lamech each having a trade. We see a progression from sexual intimacy, creating a bond between a man and a woman to a new social unit called marriage. Now, marriage was primarily about survival for the family and the heirs and their property. Hence, polygamy was tolerated as a way of providing heirs and workers for a really physically demanding livelihood. There were no state laws. There were no health care systems in place. Your clan provided your livelihood and protection. Your clan protected you in sickness and in old age. And if the father died, the male children were expected to provide for their mothers. And often, as we see in Scripture with God's commands for Israel to not intermarry with other nations that we see in Ezra and Nehemiah, marrying within your tribe or your clan was very important in maintaining not only the tribe's identity, like ethnically, but their land upon which they depended. Now, our modern-day parallel to this identity protection might be our Amish and traditional Mennonite communities. When you mar if they were to marry outside of that community, that would be a result in a loss of those community distinctives. And the current Israel-Palestine conflict demonstrates the challenge of claimed land, the same land between competing people groups. The Bible is surprisingly silent, though, in defining marriage codes compared to other Mesopotamian cultures of the time. But as is recorded in Deuteronomy, there are many specific issues about who not to marry, who you can marry, and how to dissolve a marriage. Marriage ethics that we see show up in Scripture provide not only a stability of defined relationships between clans and tribes, but they also provide protection for the most vulnerable, for the wives and for the children who could not provide for themselves. So, with the, those who critique Scripture from a modern mindset, saying that, well, there's patriarchy and there's polygamy, I can't support a faith because of that, I think they're, they're failing to think critically about what was going on. They fail to account for the kinds of cultures that the Hebrew people developed amongst and the faith, Hebrew faith, how it came about. Remember that the women's that women's suffrage is only 100 years old. Prior to 1920, just over 100 years ago, women in America could not vote, they could not own property, they could not receive inheritance, they could not sign contracts, they could not serve on juries. All that came just in the past 100 years. So we're talking about four or 5,000 years before the present day, and this is how the, the idea of marriage unfolded. This the point in this brief history is that the first marriages were fundamentally about providing a stable structure and protection for the most vulnerable, particularly regarding property and inheritance. And in this regard, the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, describes just how imperfect human marriage relationships are. 
But Scripture also shows that God cares deeply about moving those relationships towards honor and care for the most vulnerable. This was a redemptive move amidst a pretty primitive and brutal ancient culture. So, as we think about marriage, the marriage institution today, an important aspect that is now guided mostly by civil law is the protection of the vulnerable in marriage. That's why when you get married now in a modern society, the law assumes that both partners share assets equally. They share health care coverage. They receive inheritance if one partner dies and assumes that the parents are the primary caregivers and carry the primary responsibility for the children, not the state. That's why when you get divorced, the laws enforce how both partners split the assets and enforce child support to provide for the children. This is a gracious provision of the marriage institution. And that's also why many couples don't want to get married today. The reluctant partner often doesn't want the responsibility for the other or to share their assets with the other partner. As we move along further in history, one key movement, uh, and so that's the first thing, marriage as provision. And we get to the second one, marriage as covenant. As we move along further in history, one key movement that the Lord God of the Israelites introduced was actually secularizing marriage in the ancient Near East. Yeah, you heard me. God secularized marriage. Now I'm drawing on the work of Catholic theologian Edward Schillebeeks. You see, most religions in the Canaanite region were fertility cults. They worshipped deities tied to the sun and the moon and the rain and the land. The fertility of humans and of the land was dependent on the worship of these deities through orgies in the temple with temple prostitutes and sacrifices so that the man's land and the man's wife could be fertile. But yet when Yahweh, the Lord God, comes along, he says, I am the Lord your God. I'm the only God. And I am going to be the one that blesses you. This is a completely new view of God at the time. This God of the Israelites offered protection and blessing through trust, not through sex with a temple prostitute. You see, fertility and provision and blessing came not from religious and sexual activity of the participants, but through the initiative and the election of the Lord God. In scripture, that came to be known as covenant, this term. Covenant is this unbreakable, lifelong commitment of one party to the other. Now, the idea of covenant is not something new introduced by the Lord God. In the ancient Near East, covenant contracts first showed up between tribes and clans. And when a man and a woman from two different tribes were married or families, a declaration of peace was made between these two tribes. They were one. There would be no more enmity. This was extended to a marriage covenant made primarily between the fathers of the two families. They consulted their wives, and the son to be married was implicated in this covenant agreement. And the daughter, well, she had no say because it was a patriarchal society. The covenant was not drafted between the husband and wife. The covenant was between the two families. It was merely applied to them. Now, in Genesis 2.24, we see Jesus point, uh, no, sorry, in Genesis 2.24, we see how marriage is, in, in, uh, through the, uh, the early writers of 
the scripture under the Holy Spirit, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they viewed this idea of covenant in marriage as God's intent by attaching it to the creation narrative. So even though the idea of covenant was appropriated from surrounding culture many generations later, and even though we can hardly find good examples of this ideal lived out in the Old Testament, marriage was always understood as one flesh, as one life, as a covenant. Now, as we get further along in the Old Testament into the prophets, the idea, this is many generations later, the idea of Yahweh as the husband of the people of Israel comes into play to illustrate God's covenant relationship to Israel. Now, we see that most clearly in the book of Hosea, which you see come up on the screen below you. A book, it's a book that we walked through in a sermon series last year that you can refer to if you go onto our website. Now, most important in this idea of marriage as covenant and that God's relationship with God's people is that it's going to be more than a master-slave relationship. No longer will you call me master, but you will, uh, and he will, he will, uh, you will be called my bride. Most important is this uh, marriage becomes more than a contract of ownership, which a woman is nothing more than a baby-making property of a man. Instead, God will view Israel as the status of equal partner and trusted friend to participate in God's work of blessing the world. Now, compare this to other images that we find describing God and God's people. You have king and subject, father, child, master, servant. But it's in the husband-wife relationship that we see this equal partnership conveyed most clearly, as equal as God and creation can be. And though we do see God as the initiator in the relationship, the marriage theme best conveys this deeply interpersonal, deeply intimate relationship between God and God's people. And this has probably become the most dominant motif for most modern marriages. Now, so now before, think about it, before patriarchy ever ended, we see glimpses of not only protection and blessing, but also honor and dignity for the other that the Lord God of Scripture begins to inject into the covenant marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. And over time, this covenant focus shifted from a covenant between parents and their tribes to a covenant between the two parties, a husband and wife, in the covenant. Now, Shilla Beeks also notes how marriage transitioned amidst this movement from an institution primarily shaped by outside objective factors, like how the society was structured and like around agriculture or around trade and economic life and protection, to now one, it's one that is primarily shaped by internal and personal subjective factors determined by the couple themselves, like love and compatibility. And because over time, because of industrialization, urbanization, and individualization, the economic and the social and all the political aspects of community have now been taken over by the state and civil society. As I mentioned earlier, we have marriage and divorce laws. We have health care and social security, although that's not perfect. We have foster care systems, and those are tremendously not very perfect. Women can now work and vote and be financially independent. Where we live as people, where we work, and where we get our food are no longer intertwined. 
And since all these other modern aspects have been assumed by uh, society, the only social function left to marriage and the family is simply that, of being married and of being a family. So you see that progression from external to internal. But with the gains of freedom from these external shaping factors come accompanying losses. Particularly in the West, we view the nuclear family husband or two parents and two kids or however number of kids as the only thing that we have to depend on and perhaps unhealthily so. Though we've moved from a patriarchal and authoritarian pattern of family relationships to a more friendly, collegial, equal companionship, our culture expects to depend on our partners and our children a lot when needs arise. And with this covenant aspect focused solely on a couple, we've lost the support, but also the accountability of an extended family network. This shift of marriage towards a merely personal institution also impacts the care of those who aren't married. As a faith community, this is one of the ways that we, as Jesus followers, as a family of God, can really love well. In an increasingly individualistic culture, how much more important is it for us as the family of God to care for those who are not married? Think of those, uh, think of how a married couple stands before one another and says, it, says their vows, saying, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. How can the singles in the family of God or in our world experience those assurances as well? We as a family of God are called to care for one another in radical ways that don't disadvantage those who are not married. And I'm proud that WCF aspires to exemplify this well. I saw it happen in recent months when the WCF family rallied to support our dear friend Rod Ismay when he was unable to care for himself. WCFers were in his apartment cleaning. They were feeding his cat when he was in the hospital. They were helping with his financial affairs and also providing deeply personal and intimate physical care for him. This is where an approach to marriage that excludes others from stability and protection and care is antithetical to God's redemptive movement in history. You know, this week, some of us have been participating in this week of action against Christian nationalism. And we can see how Christian nationalism creeps even into our views of marriage. Christian nationalism, a big part of it is uh, conveying a very narrow sense of what is possible for God's people. And when it comes to sexuality, Christian nationalism can show up in the purity movement popular in American Christianity in past decades. You know, the, which the purity movement, if you're not familiar with it, emphasized the ethic of abstinence until marriage, sexual abstinence until marriage. And that ethic may, may be true and it may be ideal, but the way this, uh, this ethic was applied came across as a way to keep white men in power who managed women's bodies. That has been one unfortunate expression of Christian nationalism in the American church. But that's not the way that I think God calls us to live as God's family. You know, marriage as covenant in our modern era is very countercultural in a highly individualistic, consumeristic, rights-based culture. But as we trace the movement of God in Scripture, we see how marriage as covenant moves beyond survival and protection 
to, and provision towards dignity and honor of equal and complementary partners in the marriage relationship. This is reflected even in God's relationship with God's people. And this leads us to the final and probably most uniquely Christian aspect of marriage. Marriage as worship. Marriage as worship. We talked about marriage as provision, marriage as covenant, and here we are, marriage as worship. The Christian story sees marriage not just as provision, blessing, and companionship, but as a medium through which worship of the living God can take place. I wish I knew this more in more detail when we stepped into marriage. We've had to learn this along the way. So here are four ways that marriage can express worship of the living God. One, marriage as worship in sanctification. Worship in sanctification. In the New Testament, we begin to see this aspect come out more clearly. In the writing of Paul and in the teachings of Jesus, we see how marriage is also a form of sanctification, of making us more like Christ. Jesus summarizes the development of covenant and in Matthew chapter 19, where he too sees the marriage covenant itself as tied to a creation good. Jesus links marriage to God's commission to humanity to fill the earth with God's goodness. And then when we go to 1 Timothy 3, that Jenna read for us, Paul talks to also about church leaders. And they're assumed to be, uh, that it was assumed that some leaders were married. And if they were married, they were to be the husband of one wife, not multiple wives. But the early church also illustrated how marriage was not a requirement for leadership. In fact, Paul upholds singleness as a higher calling in the service of God. Yet Paul also acknowledged, the, honestly, the power of sexual temptation. So avoiding sexual immorality as a single as being single is a good reason for getting married in Paul's eyes, as he writes in 1 Corinthians 7. Marriage is a medium that marks how God's people live differently from the world around them because of how we understand the character of God to be. It's marriage as worship in sanctification. Secondly, marriage as worship through mutual spiritual formation. Deeply connected to sanctification is the, that followers of Christ are being formed towards greater likeness of Jesus. And so when I marry a couple, I'll work with them in their vows. I ask to work with them in their vows. So they are more than just hallmark greeting card aspirations. I counsel them to convey something like the following in their vows. It's like, I vow for the rest of my life to not only love you as you are now, but to love you as Christ has made you to be. I'm committing to this relationship to allow God to form me into Christ-likeness through you and for God to use me to form Christ-likeness in you. That's what marriage is for. Marriage is holy. It's set apart in one sense of an individual being set apart from all other relationships to the same degree of intimacy as their spouse. But marriage is holy also in the sense of me being shaped in the image of Christ through this lifelong relationship. How does that work? Well, just, you know, every, most other relationships, especially when you're dating, it's about covering up your flaws enough so that you can get to know the person so that there can be a commitment. But when you get married, just as the act of sex reveals the most intimate part of our physical and emotional being to one another, marriage is this relationship where the most intimate parts of our personhood, not just our strengths, but our faults, our insecurities, 
and our shames, those are fully known by our partner. We can let them know. We can let them in. And it's in the safety of this covenant promise of marriage that those uh, vulnerabilities won't be used against you and that I'm not going to be rejected because of my faults, because of my insecurities, and because of my shame. Third, marriage is also worship through mutual image-bearing to fulfill God's creation mandate. Assumed in this idea of covenant marriage between a healthy man and a woman is the possibility of having offspring. This is participation in God's creation mandate to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. This seems to be the most natural and comprehensive acknowledgement of human biology and psychology. But Professor of Ethics Robert Song suggests that procreation is not just a biological act. And in his view, covenanted same-sex couples who are Jesus' followers, too, can steward their time and their gifts to participate in the creation mandate. Now, whether this view lends sufficiently to justify blessing same-sex marriage is now what's being debated in the Christian church, including here at WCF. Lastly, worship marriage as worship by mirroring this covenant relationship between God and God's people. Hosea began to talk about it, but we see it most fully in Revelations 19, verse 6 and 7. In Scripture, we see this movement from marriage being protection to marriage being a covenant between parties to be a covenant between God and God's people that culminates in this consummation described in Revelations 19 that's on the screen below you. The one flesh of earthly marriage is a dim reflection of what will be when two distinct realities come together as one. They are united, God and God's people. And in the life to come, when Jesus returns, God's people will be united to God fully. Nothing will be hidden. One flesh of God and God's people. One flesh of heavens and earth coming together. One flesh of the garden in creation and the holy city of Jerusalem. A new heavens and a new earth. It's this in mind that we're thinking. This is what marriage is pointing towards. This union, this perfect union of God and creation. God and God's people. And so when a couple asks me to marry them, I talk to them about what I understand Christian marriage to mean along these lines. Marriage as provision, marriage as covenant, and marriage as worship. That's what I see in Scripture. Now, whether or not you have a faith conviction, most couples usually will agree with marriage as provision. But this role of marriage is already enshrined in the marriage and divorce laws of the civil state. Regardless of our faith convictions, couples who choose to get legally married, to provide for one another, to care for one another, that's a really good thing in a world of transactional sex and financial arrangements of temporary convenience. So we should encourage marriage just for that reason. Many couples might even assent to the idea of marriage as covenant in a sense of a lifelong permanent relationship. But that sense of covenant permanence doesn't carry the same weight and meaning if we don't first understand God's covenant with God's people laid out in Scripture. Now, assuming that abuse and the devastating betrayal of trust aren't involved in a marriage breakdown, the commitment really is for life, not just for convenience, and not just based on how long a partner's feelings last. Now, 
when we get to marriage as worship, that's where it's more complex. And that's where even professing Christians, even like Julie and I, we didn't see it that way when we first got married. We had to learn about marriage that way. We may not see marriage as worship of the living God. Now, we might appropriate Christian language, we might appropriate Christian rites, and end up using marriage as worship of our happiness, or worship of a particular view of love, or worship of some family ideal and structure that we have in mind. But it's not always necessarily worship of the living God, which is what we are truly created for and where we find most joy. So whether you are married, single, divorced, or widowed, I ask you, what view of marriage do you have in mind when we begin to talk about marriage? And as we consider the role of the church and its role in affirming marriage, what view of marriage do we have in mind? This is a meaningful but complicated task before us as a diverse community of Jesus followers. Those who are already married, we don't have it all together. And those who are not married, you're not second-class citizens. We're in this together. We're hearing one another, looking to Scripture, relying on God's grace, and discerning how God is calling all of us as a faith community to best bear witness to and express worship of the living God in the world that we live in today. So, my friends, may we do so faithfully, may we do so lovingly and humbly to the glorious worship of God. In Jesus' name, amen.